We are considering the hope uh, we have as a people in Jesus Christ. And as we do that this morning, I want us to go to the 26th chapter of Acts. If you've got your Bibles or your, your phone Bibles or whatever it is you're using, um, you can follow along with us there. The big idea this morning, I think, is that the hope we possess, specifically the hope of resurrection that God has demonstrated in Jesus Christ is is the most costly, the most valuable thing we can possess as a human being. That hope. Sometimes I have been accused of being a bit thrifty in the choices I make. Some might even call me a cheapskate, right? If there's the, the, uh, the list price, the sticker price, I'm always looking for the the bargain price to haggle down to. But I've slowly come to realize that there are at least a few things in life that are worth being uh, more expensive, spending the extra money, right? Because the, the value of those things is actually greater, right? They have a greater intrinsic worth. In my estimation, coffee beans are one of those things. I would gladly spend a few extra dollars a pound and drink something that tastes good in the morning rather than like, you know, hot brown water. Coffee is, is worth the cost uh, to, 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 to invest in that uh, experience. And of course, we're always evaluating a variety of things, right? We live in a market economy and we, we decide what something is worth to us, and then we sort of correspondingly appropriate our, our resources and the things we have to possess them. I was reading uh, the summary of a, of a book that was published a few years back, uh, written by a woman named Amanda Bennett. She's a, a journalist, or was a journalist for the Wall Street Journal. And in the 1980s, she was sent uh, to be their correspondent in Beijing uh, for for. I think close to a decade. And after she arrived in Beijing, she met uh, a man named Terence, who would eventually become her husband. He was working there for uh, an American organization as well. And they, they fell in love. They started a family. They moved uh, across the world over the next decade until uh, a cancer diagnosis interrupted their life together with one another. And in the the next several years that followed, their family had to make a series of choices regarding medical treatment and and care provided by doctors and hospitals across the world. In particular, some of the choices they made had to come down to the cost of those particular treatments. In the 1980s, she said that over, I think it was three or four years, the sum total of of her husband Terrence's treatments came to about $600,000. Today, today's medical economy, that would easily be several million dollars, I'm sure. She wrote uh, a book reflecting back on those experiences, actually after her husband's death, remembering those years and, and the beauty, but also the difficulty of those years. And the name of the book is The Cost of Hope. And she probes in this memoir what is our hope ultimately worth to us. Now, in her case, the the hope uh, there was the the extension of her husband's life, the the provision of of a greater quality of life for him in his final days. 
But how do you assign value to something that personal? Right? How do we value or evaluate hope? What is its cost? Often, it seems, the, the most difficult, the most trying times in our life can be clarifying in answering that question because they, they strip away what are more superficial desires, things that aren't actually worth the investment we're making in them. And they, they lay uh, more, more clearly before us what it is we can actually continue to draw hope from. So this morning, I want to ask you if, if this has been a season of shifting or shaking or endurance or difficulty, as it has been for many of us, where are you finding hope today? Where are you finding hope? And how are you investing in that hope? Right? What is it worth to you? How might that hope to truly live out of that place cost you something. The Apostle Paul, as we've looked at his life and his mission in the book of Acts, is no stranger to hardships. We've seen arrests, we've seen trials, we've seen stonings, we've seen beatings. But it's evident from Paul's own testimony that those difficulties clarified for him the hope that he possessed. And the one thing that Paul says again and again, the thing he has allowed himself to hope most deeply in, is what he calls the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, God himself was crucified on our behalf in order to, to lay bare, to, to, to vanquish the power of sin and death and darkness. And then in that same person of Jesus Christ, God raised his son for us into everlasting life. Not just so that Jesus might possess life, but so that there would be this whole wave of new humanity which would follow that resurrection. Right? He would be the first fruit of resurrection life. And this, Paul says, is our greatest hope in life. But it's a hope that cost Paul greatly. Right? Last week we saw it was a hope that cost Paul his freedom. Right? Paul became a man bound in Roman chains because of the hope of the resurrection to which he testifies. And so today as we move into Acts 26 we see Paul on trial yet again. But he's on trial, he says, not for any crime he has committed but simply for the offense of hope, right? Of having a hope on which he has staked everything in his life. I wonder, do we appreciate, do we fully share in that same hope this morning? Let me pray for us as we open to Acts 26, starting in verse 2. Lord Jesus, would you make clear, strip away those things which are false hopes, but make evident the living hope we possess in you this morning. 
Lord, would you resurrect that hope in us? Would you free us to envision, to imagine, to offer all that we possess in, in accordance with that hope today? Lord, may your word inspire us this morning. May the words of my mouth as I preach this text, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in Acts 26, starting in verse 2. From last week to this week, Paul was arrested after a riot in Jerusalem. Right? He was in the temple precincts. He was accused of, of being a troublemaker, a rabble-rouser. Uh, his life was spared by the Romans. And now he's been brought to Caesarea, partly for his own protection. Uh, there were plots against Paul's life. Uh, but also so that the, the Roman proconsul could hear Paul's testimony uh, and then decide what to do with him, what charges uh, to, to send Paul under as Paul goes to Caesar to stand trial uh, in Rome. So again, what, what's being evaluated here in chapter 26 in this trial is what in particular is Paul guilty of? Verse 2. Paul said, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country, but also then in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? So again, we have the the ruling authorities, the leading powers of Paul's world standing before him in, in his trial here in Caesarea. You've got Festus, who is the, the Roman representative, and you have King Agrippa, who is uh, essentially the, the king of the Jews, appointed by Caesar to have some kind of sovereignty over parts of Israel-Palestine. And again, they're trying to understand why is Paul even here? Why is he standing trial? Why have the, the Jewish religious leaders opposed Paul so violently? As he spoke in the temple, as he's spoken in synagogues. And in verse 3, Paul asks Agrippa for the, the patience and the time to now tell his side of the story. And he reminds them, firstly, of his own background, his childhood, right? Saul was, was raised in Asia Minor, but he left at a young age. He came to Jerusalem. He was tutored by the, the finest of the Pharisees. 
And he says, you can look at my life. You can look at how I've lived among my people. Right? I'm no religious anarchist. He says, instead, I have conformed to the, the strictest guidelines, the strictest sect, the Pharisees, and their way of life. Paul's saying is, let me be clear, I'm not on trial today for breaking any of the laws of my people. In fact, he says, I'm on trial for believing in those laws. Look at verse 6. He says, it's because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors, right? Moses and the patriarchs and Abraham. He says, it's because of that hope that I'm on trial today. Verse 7 It's because I believe the same promise all 12 tribes of Israel are hoping to see fulfilled. He says, it's because of that same hope I stand accused today. Then in verse 8, he names that hope. He says, I'm on trial today because I believe that we worship a God who raises the dead. The only difference between me... And my opponents, Paul says, is that I actually believe this has taken place. I'm guilty of taking God at his word. Right? I'm guilty of believing the message that God has raised a person from death to life. And that it's happened in this present generation. Essentially, Paul is saying, I am guilty only if, if the charge is that I'm guilty of having this same hope that all our people claim to believe. How seriously do we take that hope? Right? How, how seriously have we staked our lives on the hope of a God of resurrection? I say I believe in this. We, we confess it as a doctrine, right? When we get up and say the Apostles' Creed, we, we believe in Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and buried, and raised from death on the third day. It's one thing to confess it. It's another thing to live in that manner, to hope in that manner, to plan our lives, to, to risk something on behalf of that hope. Believing that it is the truth. Are we people guilty of that great hope? Does it steer my, my values and investments and my vision and the plans that I'm making? How does one who hopes, who's guilty of hope in the resurrection, how does that person live? And Paul says, starting in verse 9, well, let me tell you my story. Right? Just like the song, Blessed Assurance. This is my story, Paul says. This is my song. Let me, let me tell you how it's happened in my life. Look at verses 9 and following. He says, I, too, was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another. 
to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme, right, to, to disown the name of Jesus. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Verse 12, one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. Right? He's, on the, he's on the side of the religious elites who are now persecuting him. He went with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. First part of Paul's story is his opposition to, his resistance to hope. And that comes from, from his evaluation of this particular hope. And I think it's important for us to say it's, it's not worth placing our hope and staking our life on just any message, right? All hopes are not, in fact, equal. Hope has to be tested. Hope has to be evaluated. Hopes that are false hopes need to be tested and evaluated. Right? Take, take any one of the, the modern-day cults in our world. Right? They all have a message of some particular hope or, or something to believe in. Some of you may uh, have, have heard of or, or become aware of there's a, a cult that's growing in the United States called the Falun Gong. And uh, most people don't actually know the name of this cult, but you'll see their stuff show up in your mailbox. They, they have a, a ballet that they perform at the Flynn every year called the... Um, Shen, Shen Yun, if you see, it's, a, it's an Asian Chinese uh, ballet. And they, they fund the heck out of that thing and they want people to come hear the message uh, of, of Shen Yun. They have a newspaper they've created called the Epic Times that they ship to your mailbox and they've got up on YouTube now and, and on Facebook. And it, it looks just like a group of people that are kind of interested in meditation or exercise or politics. But if you dig a little deeper, the, the leader of the Falun Gong is a guy who claims he is in his own person divine. He claims he can implant mystical healing wheels in the bodies of his followers. He says he's doing battle with alien forces colonizing the earth. I mean, this is what the organization is about if you, if you go a little deeper. And to set your hopes on something like that, right, would indeed be dangerous. It would be unwise. It would be foolish. Saul, in his day, and his compatriots saw the claims of the followers of Jesus as equally astonishing, as outrageous, right, as dangerous. And so they tested these claims, and in their evaluation, it was something they needed to shut down. Right? What were the followers of Jesus claiming? Why was it dangerous? Well, they claimed that, that the whole hope of Israel, the law, the prophets, everything that Moses taught, everything that Abraham believed in faith, had come to fulfillment in a rabbi that Rome had crucified in Jerusalem. Right? They had pinned their hopes on a crucified 
God. And so Saul, right, and his, 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 his companions, they, they got on their horses, they went from synagogue to synagogue, shutting down this particular hope. And I wonder if we ever discreetly find ourselves doing something similar. Right? Few of us go out directly opposing the hope of the gospel. Few of us have ever been violently or directly opposed or resisted for our faith in Jesus. But maybe that's because that level of persecution isn't necessary to hinder our hope. I think we're often content to to believe kind of a a miniature-sized version of the gospel. It's like when you go out on, on Halloween and you get the the little snack-sized bite candy bar instead of the whole, the whole thing. fun size, right, they call it, something like that. Are we content with, with one bite or we want the whole thing? Are we content to believe in theory, yes, God could raise someone from the dead? Are we content to believe, yes, I, I believe God did that 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus? But are we unwilling to actually risk anything on the truth of that message? Are we unwilling to build our dreams and live out of the values that that, that resurrection power informs? Right? Do we pray with Paul like he does in Ephesians 1 that our, our eyes, the eyes of our hearts would be opened... To see that the same power at work in the person of Jesus Christ, the same power that raised him from the dead, he says, is now at work in us. Are we we willing to let that hope come forth? Or or do we want to manage it? Do we want to shut it down? Are there comforts? Are there other voices? Are there fears of believing that hope too greatly that cause us to, to shut down hope in our lives? Saul was a man dominated by his opposition to the hope of Jesus. He says he lived his life in opposition to that hope until one day in the middle of his campaign on the way to Damascus, that living hope opposed him. It confronted him physically, spoke to him. Verse 13. Knocked him to the ground, Paul says, and he heard this voice saying, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you opposing me? Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting the very hope of Israel? And in that moment, Saul's life is blinded, Saul is stunned. Saul is arrested by that question. Maybe we need a similar encounter with the Holy Spirit to to stun us, to arrest us, to cause us to evaluate what is shutting out, what is blocking the hope of God, the living hope of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because God wants to clear those things away. Paul's knocked off his horse, but in the humility of Paul's response to that encounter. There is a a resurrection story that now begins in Paul. 
He stops resisting hope and is instead made an ambassador, made the apostle of this message. Look with me at verse 15. He said, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is the story, Saul says, of of Saul the persecutor being raised up to become Paul the Apostle. Right? From persecutor of God's hope to apostle of that same hope. And I think what happens in verse 15 at the start of this passage is incredibly important because it makes possible all that follows in Paul's life after that. Saul makes this incredible admission Right? He is the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he's the most promising sort of representative of his generation. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards. And yet, on that road to Damascus, as Jesus stands before him, he confesses. He says, who are you? I don't, I don't know you. I do not know the expression of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. I think it's, it's Paul's way of admitting that he has fundamentally misunderstood. He's missed something up to that moment. Who are you? Do we really know the person of Jesus? Does our vision, does our understanding of who he is and the hope he possesses need to be renewed? Not as an idea, but as a living interaction and encounter. It's amazing how Jesus replies. He says, even though I'm the one you have resisted and opposed, you've been kicking against my message. Even though all the violence you have done to me and my people, Jesus says, I have come to you, Saul. 
first to, to knock you on your butt, <laughs> right? You've got you to gotta slow down. There's, there's a confrontation here. But after Paul is confronted, Jesus says, I've come so that you might be raised up again with a different mission now. I love verse 16. Jesus says, now get up and stand on your feet. <laughs> come on. There's more to do here. Right, there is a story of resurrection that, that Jesus wants to unfold in Paul's life. He wants that hope to transform him. And he goes on to say, I am going to make you, Saul, a servant and a witness of my hope. Everything your eyes are seeing now, everything you are going to see, I want you to testify to that. I'm going to send you to the nations. I'm going to, to lead you not only to the Jews, but, but among the Gentiles. To turn them from darkness to light. To proclaim a message of forgiveness and faith. In verse 20, Paul says it's his obedience to that command. To that vision God gives him. To the hope God gives him. It's that Obedience that drives him to, to go to Damascus and then on to Judea and then throughout the, the known Roman world multiple times over decades. He reiterates, it's because Jesus has sent me as an ambassador of this hope that I stand before you today on trial. In verse 23, he, he puts as fine a point on that hope as he can. He says, my hope is that what Moses and the prophets have foretold is, is now underway. Israel's Messiah has suffered. Israel's Messiah has been raised. And so now the light of his message is being sent not only to the Jews, but to the, the nations of the earth. God has raised up an incredible hope. question is, are we willing, are we desiring that hope to be resurrected in us as a people? Do you and I desire that hope? In the last few verses of this chapter, we don't, we don't have time to look at in detail today, Paul puts the question pretty directly to his audience, both to, to Festus, the, the Roman authority, and also to King Agrippa. And he challenges them with the, the message of this hope. He says, I wish that all people, that you yourselves would become as I am, he says, except for these chains. I, I wish that you would stake your lives on the hope of this resurrection. And I think if Paul stood in the pulpit this morning, he'd challenge us in the same way. He'd say, let my life stand as my testimony. Right? Let the book of Acts and what it communicates, the, the things Paul suffers, the thing Paul's, things Paul endures, demonstrate that anyone who is willing to give their lives for the sake of this hope will not be disappointed. Paul has no regrets in the way he has lived his life. He would challenge us that if we're to be found guilty, may we be found guilty of having too great a hope in the God who gives life to the dead. 
In Romans 4, 17, Paul writes to the church in Rome where he's about to go. He speaks of the God he worships as a God who gives life to the dead and a God who calls into being things that were not. What would it like, look like for you to worship that God today? To know a God who can give life to that which is dead and can call into being those things which are not yet created. Let me pray for us. Lord, I confess that it's easy to settle into smaller hopes. It's easier to see limitations. It's easier to grow weary. But Lord, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is a new creation reality at work on the earth. Lord, we cannot possibly hope, we cannot even imagine how great your desires are for us and for the church and for those who are outside the church but you are longing to heal and to draw near and to know. Lord, we invite you to raise that hope up greatly within us and help us to live lives that reflect that hope. Help us to invest in the great cost that it might have for us. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.